Ministries. Uh, you notice I've kind of bounced around to a lot of different passages, but Ephesians has been really powerful for me as I've been uh, thinking through these issues and, and, and looking at what it means to read Jesus, the church. And uh, one of the things that, that kind of jumps off the page at me when we get into Ephesians is Paul talks about schemes. So he talks about the schemes of the devil and these schemes that are at work. And that sort of rings with uh, supervillain vibes, right? We've so got evil schemes that somebody has, has got planned. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that Christianity is, um, is in a sense, a, a form of conspiracy theory. We, we, we are the ultimate conspiracy theorists. We, we believe that the enemy of God has been scheming since the beginning of time to undermine all the things of God. And that's a, that's a very supervillain thing to do, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that everything that the good guy does gets broken and, and messed up. I'm going to displace God. And in our culture, we're rather dismissive of conspiracy theories, which is interesting that we're still dismissive of conspiracy theories when uh, in our present day, the difference between reality and conspiracy theory is about three to six months. It takes about three to six months for us to realize that the conspiracy theory was, in fact, the reality. Satan's mission is this conspiracy to break whatever God has made good. Now, let me take us back to where we were a couple of weeks ago, the last time I spoke to you. Missional priority of Jesus, number six, heal the broken. So if the enemy has as his mission to break everything, and Christ has as his mission to heal what is broken, that's, that's a pretty significant mission. And we rarely appreciate the scope of the problem because everything has been touched by this brokenness. We, a lot of times, regard things as good or pretty good, that if we really understood what, what, what God created them to be, we would, we would come to the conclusion that they're actually a damaged version of what is meant to be. And we only regard them as pretty good because it's all we have ever known. We imagine that we're pretty much seeing the truth that is occasionally interrupted by lies. But the actual state of our world is that it is all deception, and occasionally truth breaks through the deception. Paul's solution to this is that we need to grow up. We need to mature in Jesus and learn the truth from him. He says in Ephesians 4, verse 14 and 15, there will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Now, embedded here in this passage is this incredibly important phrase, we're supposed to speak the truth in love. Now, let's just be honest. Speaking the truth 
in love is among our greatest challenges. We're not that good at it. At least wise, we tend to be better at one or the other. We can tell people the truth, or we can be very loving. Being very loving and telling them the truth at the same time is sort of difficult. A lot of us don't tell the truth to each other until we get upset. A lot of us don't, don't get to that point until, until we're so frustrated with the lie that somebody's living that we sort of blow up at them, and then the truth is sort of lost on them because it's delivered without any love. Or we love people greatly, but we're sort of afraid to tell them the truth because of what that truth might do to that relationship. And so we're good at one or the other. We tend to not be great at both at the same time. Plus which, the culture is predisposed to believe when we're telling a truth they don't like, they're predisposed to believe that that is unloving. Hateful even. They've been geared up for this because this is the way the culture works. In our world, people who don't agree with each other tend to be kind of nasty to each other. And they expect this of us. They expect that if we disagree with their positions on things, that if we hold to a different righteousness, a different morality, it necessarily means that we will be hateful towards them. The missional solution to all of this is that these two strategies of Jesus are going to be held in very careful balance. One of those strategies I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, mission strategy number six, speak the truth without compromise. Which means, first of all, don't compromise the truth. Don't, don't change the truth in order to appease the culture, as many are wont to do. But also, don't compromise the speaking of that truth. As Paul says to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Whether it's popular or not, whether or not it's what people want to hear, just keep speaking the truth. The world is a dark place. And you, Jesus would say, Sermon on the Mount, you are in possession of the light. If you have the light in a dark place, you don't hide the light. You, you put it up on a stand so that it can be seen, so that it will light the whole house. Our mission hinges on truth, righteousness, and the gospel. Again, two weeks ago, introduced this from uh, Ephesians 6. Our mission hinges on truth, righteousness, and the gospel. Remember the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and, and, and feet that are trod with the peace that comes from the gospel. This is the answer that God gives us to deception, to immorality, and hopelessness. In other words, this is all good news. But just because it's good news doesn't mean that everybody wants it. Those who don't want it, those who don't understand it, may not perceive it as good news. But we continue to tell the truth 
in love. And that phrase sort of acknowledges a, a, a simple truth here, that it matters how we tell the truth. Not just that we tell the truth, but how we go about it. Mission strategy number seven that we see Jesus do, manifest the love of God. Remember Jesus talking to Nicodemus? He says, I am here because of God's love for the world. His coming, his life, his ministry, even his death are all about God's love. That's his motive for everything that happens in the gospel narrative. And so it has to be our motivation. We tell the truth when it hurts, because truth hurts sometimes. We tell the truth when it's unwelcome. We tell the truth when it's inconvenient. We tell the truth when it's hard. But we don't do it for self-justification. We don't do it out of a place of pride or anger or condemnation. We must do it because we're motivated by love. Which Jesus does so well. And we, well, we're still working on it. We're still working on it. The truth spoken because of love is the ideal mission strategy. Because the truth has the power to free. The truth has the power to heal things that have been broken. And what has been broken? Everything. The truth is this cure. The truth of Jesus is the solution to our problem. But there's this delusion that we're all under sometimes. We believe that what we see and what we know and what we understand about the world is in fact truth. It is reality. The scripture tells us that our wisdom is foolishness to God. There was a time when I actually knew everything. Now, the more I know, the less I know. The power of the truth is the power to wake us all up from what we think that we know. Love has the power to make us listen to the truth. Not everyone we speak to will believe. Not everyone will answer the call. But we can pretty much be certain that without love, most people won't even listen. We may not recognize love as love when someone tells us a truth we don't want to hear. We are sort of pre-programmed to see hate to see judgment. And this is the nature of our mission field today, where vice has replaced virtue and idolatry is considered ideal. And love means an endorsement of whatever sin, whatever destructive choice I'm making, you better agree with me and tell me I'm right. It's a very different mission field. And a different mission field requires a different conversation. It's truth 
spoken in love that is disarming, that is unnerving, that is unexpected by the world. And how do we do it? Particularly with those that we don't love already. Now, it's easy for me to talk about telling the truth in love to people that we hold closely. I will tell the truth to my children because I love my children dearly. How, how, do, we, how do we tell the truth in love to people that we haven't learned to love yet? Well, there's a couple of things that we need to understand, again, from the Word. Ephesians 6 uh, Paul says in verse 10, he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is the first thing that we need to understand, that our battle is not against humanity. And that's difficult to remember, isn't it? That's, that's, I mean, it's easy to say, but it's hard to remember because who calls us names? Who maligns us? Who sins against us? People. Sinners. Sinners call us hateful. They call us hypocrites. They mock our faith. They rewrite our morality. Paul says, you're going to see that sin in the people. That's where you see it. And in fact, that's where you were in your old life. But it is not where that sin begins. One of the things that's really important about this passage that we understand is that there is a battle. Not a battle against humanity, but there is a battle. We're not at war with humanity. We are at war to redeem humanity. And if you are not fighting that battle, you're already losing it. If you're not gearing up, if you're not going deeper into truth, into righteousness, into the gospel, if you're not equipping yourself with the things of God in order to engage this battle... Well, we would say that you're showing up to a gunfight with a knife, but that's not going quite far enough. If you show up to do battle with the enemy of God without having prepared yourself with the things of God, uh, it's like showing up for a cannon fight with a Pez dispenser. It's pointless. There is a battle, and we're in it. Our battle is against the schemes of darkness. Schemes of darkness. See, there is this dastardly supervillain who lives only to undo good things of God. To plunge humanity into sin and chaos simply because God loves us. And let's face it, we're kind of God's kryptonite in this scenario, right? Because God loves us, and we're pretty messed up. We are vulnerable, we are selfish, we're easily given to deception. And the enemy, the arch-villain, the super-villain, one of his names of many is the father of lies. 
And if we're given to deception, he knows it. And he's going to play that card against us all the time. And he does. And there's many times we can look at our own lives and know that he's won the day. Jesus looks at us and he sees our fallenness. He sees our sin. And what does he say? I love you. Let me help you. Let me tell you. Let, let me tell you what the truth is. Because it will set you free. Now we have to look at the world the way that Jesus looks at the world. We have to look past sin and sinners to the source of that deception. We sometimes say, well, we, we hate the sin and we love the sinner. I'm not sure that that works. At least I'm not sure that we're any good at it. Uh, and here's the problem. Hate, hate the sin doesn't really work because we don't hate all sins equally. Uh, I don't hate being selfish. I, I kind of enjoy being selfish. Now your selfishness is becoming a bit of a problem. But my selfishness works for me. Right? I, I don't necessarily hate that one. Now I hate what it does. I hate what it does to me. I hate what it does to my relationships. But selfishness feels pretty good when I'm in the middle of it. And so we sort of pick and choose which sins we hate. And, and for some reason, the sins we hate are always the ones that we don't struggle with. And this is why hating the sin is kind of an ineffective strategy. Hate's a bad strategy for us. It kind of makes us fools and hypocrites. But here's what we will do. We will mourn all the damage that sin has done. All the damage that sin is doing. And we've got to look to Jesus again. Mission strategy number eight. What does Jesus do? Obtain victory through sacrifice. Paul says this is the proof that Jesus loved us, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Now, can we just back up for a minute and acknowledge that that is a crazy plan? That Jesus came to die for us to prove that God loves us? What, what kind of plan is that? The disciples spend three years with Jesus, follow him around everywhere. Multiple times, multiple times he tells them, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be put on trial, I'm going to be put to death, three days later I'm going to rise up, it's all going to be okay. What do they do when it happens? They completely melt down. They freak out. They're scared. They're lost. They're depressed. They hide themselves away. Why? Because this is not how you win. Everybody knows this is not how you win. Unless you're Jesus. And then you win by making the ultimate sacrifice. That's his strategy. Because the battle he's fighting is not a battle against humanity. And let's be clear. Humanity's guilty. Right? I mean, we're guilty. We did it. We can say we didn't do it. We can say we didn't make the mess. We can say we didn't eat the cookies. 
We did it. We're guilty. But Jesus doesn't come to fight a battle against us. Now, granted, Jesus will return and there will be a judgment. But the objective of Jesus' ministry is not to fight us. It's to fight what got us here. It's to fight the darkness. It's to fight that sin. And so we return to the armor of God. We're going to need it. Because our battle is not against humanity either. It's not the enemy that Christ came to defeat, and it's not our enemy. We have a much more dangerous enemy. We've already armored ourselves up with truth, righteousness, and the gospel. And Paul goes on in Ephesians 6, 16. He says, in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You know, there's a certain mythology in, in church work and in ministry that... When things get easy, when the workload gets light, when the doors all swing open in front of you, when the enemy's nowhere in sight, it means that you're finally getting it right. The truth is, if the flaming arrows are not coming for you, it's because the enemy does not consider you a threat. We keep wondering all the time, don't we, Caleb? When? When does this ministry stuff get easy? It doesn't. It, not till Jesus comes back, it doesn't. Because the enemy's constantly at work. And the more we press into his territory, the more he starts launching the offensive. The point is, we take the arrows. We take the arrows, whatever they may be, wherever they may come from, and we extinguish them by faith. We are confident in our salvation so that we can win the opportunity to share the word. And so our mission requires compassion even for those who sin against us. And I'm not very good at that. And you're probably not very good at that either. But we both know somebody who is. And we've got to learn from him. We've got to learn from Jesus because to speak the truth into the darkness is sometimes, maybe even very often, maybe nearly always, to invite the darkness to hate us. Jesus in the Gospel of John says, look, if the world hates you, just remember it hated me first. Kind of how this deal is going to work out. If we respond to hate from the world with more hate, with anger, with resentment or condemnation, we have just surrendered the battle to speak truth. Because it's not those who hate us who are the enemy. It's not those who reject and even mock Jesus Christ who are the enemy. It is the darkness. It is the deception. It is the evil scheme that owns and enslaves those who listen to it. One of the things we've got, to, we've got to understand is that sin, no matter how well packaged it is, is damaging. 
no matter, no matter what we tell ourselves about it, no matter how victimless we imagine it to be, sin is doing damage. That's the whole part of this evil scheme. You get people to participate in their own brokenness, in their own imprisonment, and you tell them it's good for them. Drink this poison. It'll make everything better. We are damaged spiritually, and that means a lot more than we just broke God's rules and made God angry. It means we're damaged because we are created to exist in God's presence, and we've lost it. We're damaged emotionally, we're damaged relationally, we're damaged mentally and intellectually, and very often damaged physically. And when the damage comes, as it inevitably will, the maniacal plot of this arch-villain is to blame the damage on the people who pointed out that it was going to do damage. The people who said it was broken to begin with. It's not sin that damages, we say. It's all that righteousness of yours, all that guilt and shame that you're doling out. Here's something else we need to understand and appreciate about this work, about the mission, about the message. The truth is always good medicine. Even if it's not wanted. Even if it's not designed, you know... You kids have it easy. They have made all the medicines taste reasonably good. When I was a kid, good medicine, nasty, nasty, nasty. And, and what did mom say? If it didn't taste bad, it wouldn't work. Sometimes we don't want the medicine. Sometimes it doesn't taste all that good going down. But the truth is always good medicine. We don't share it because we're trying to inflict pain, more pain and suffering and, and, and discomfort on people. We share it because the truth is good for us. The truth is transformative for us, and it will be transformative for them. It may not be what we think we want, but we don't know what we don't know. Whatever brokenness we own, whatever brokenness we know among one another, whatever brokenness we encounter in the world, the truth and righteousness of Christ, when it's offered in love, is the cure. Truth because of love is a great synopsis for the gospel. It's the good news that the world needs, and we need to bring it. And maybe sometimes even more than we need to bring it, we need to witness the power of it. We need to see what it will do. I need to see what it will do. Can I just confess to you this morning that I am tired. And I don't mean I'm tired because it's been another long week. That's true too. I mean I am existentially tired. I am weary of the journey. You say, well, you probably need a break. I probably do. You say, well, you're probably doing too much. Well, obviously, I'm doing too much. 
probably need more help. I definitely need more help. But I also have a lot of help. Some of our boys came in this week and took down the rest of the pews. And men carried a bunch of stuff out yesterday. I've had lots of help. I've had lots of offers of help. I have people volunteering to do all kinds of... I look around this room this morning... And and uh, a lot of guests this morning. God bless you for being here. Uh, but our members, nearly all of you, are engaged in ministry somewhere. You have a service that you perform to the kingdom through this place. That's phenomenal. You have any idea how rare that is? It's beautiful. So this is. I'm not blaming you for my exhaustion. I'm not blaming you for this tiredness. Am I burning out? Oh, not really. I was out of town last weekend. Visited with some friends over the weekend. Had a very pleasant visit. Dear, dear friends. People I love very much. Hadn't seen for years. Very refreshing and wonderful, and I enjoyed it. I'll tell you the truth. I missed being here. I missed being with you. I think this is about the most exciting time to be in this church I've ever been in any church anywhere. I'm excited. I'm not burning out. I'm thrilled to death. I'm just waiting to see what God's going to do next. I believe that God is working. I believe by the grace of God, that I might be doing the best work in ministry I've ever done. I believe I have some of the finest fellow travelers for this journey. I love that you as a congregation embrace each challenge that we put in front of you to grow and to serve. I believe God is preparing us for mighty kingdom things But I wonder if you know what it took to get here. I wonder if you know how dear the price has been. I wonder at how dark the world has become and how long the church has slept. I wonder at my own brokenness, my own inadequacy, my own complacency. I wonder what it will take to compel young people to actually see Jesus and to take him seriously. I wonder what it will compel, what it will take to compel the church to stand up and suit up in the armor of God to engage the battle that's coming. I wonder if sacrifice is the price that we have to pay to prove to the world that we're speaking the truth out of love, are we ready to pay it? And as I contemplate these things, I find that I am tired in my soul, but also in my soul, I know the only relief is not coming from more sleep. The only relief is not coming from vacation. It's coming from a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit. 
is coming from witnessing what God's going to do. I think of Jesus in the garden, praying that this cup would pass from him, but then praying, not my will, but yours. And I know that that outpouring of the Spirit comes when we put God's will above our own. And I think of Jesus on the cross as he looks down on the very people who've put him there and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I know that the work of God that we're waiting for happens when we're prepared to sacrifice ourselves to show the world how much we love them just so that we can win the opportunity to tell them the truth.